you cannot achieve happiness. Happiness happens. It's a transitory state. Imagine how happy I felt when I got relief from bladder pressure. How long did that happiness last before it embraced the void? Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline? That we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? No! Don't save Riley! <laughs> Take her to the moon for me. Okay? Welcome, friends, to episode 251 of Embrace the Void, our slightly new format with the same unchanging void. I am your host, Aaron, and this week I am excited to be back from my two-month sabbatical. To ease myself back into this voidy world, I've brought on a ringer for this week. Besides being my father and the source of a pretty solid percentage of the weirdness that makes up my person, Jesse Rabinowitz is a clinical psychologist with decades of experience helping patients deal with a wide range of mental illnesses. He's recently been working on a multimedia mindfulness project called Mindfulness for Menches, which is a distillation of a life's worth of mucking about in human minds in a way that I think would be very useful for folks looking for a kind of woo-free approach to mindfulness. So, Jesse, would you like to once again say hi to the void? Howdy, void. How have you been? <laughs> Good. I'm, I'm baffled that we haven't had you back on more recently. As I was looking back, I had assumed that we'd had you on, you know, somewhere in the 200 episodes in between when we last chatted, which was way back when we talked about Trump's malignant narcissism and diagnosing at a distance back in episodes 11 and 12. So, yeah. uh, but strangely not, you know, we had, we talked some Cronenberg, but nothing over here recently. I, it probably just seems like I've been around because I haunt your dreams. Well, yes, of course, right. There is the sort of silent, <laughs> like the, 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 the voice in the back of my head, always sort of whispering the uh, weirdest truths possible. Yes. No, it's fun. I'm glad to have you on. I wanted to talk about a couple of things we wanted for a while to talk about this mindfulness for Mensch's project that you've been working on, mm -hmm. that, which is going to, we'll talk about as a mix of a sort of website and hopefully at some point a book. And in the meantime, I also wanted to talk some about mindfulness itself, because I think it's a term that is going to continue to be increasingly popular. And it's one that has been like, a cornerstone of my life growing up, but I think is becoming sort of a new thing for a lot of people. And you've kind of spent your whole career doing a kind of mindfulness projects in your in your work. So I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about it overall. So to, for folks who didn't literally grow up with you or haven't followed your appearances on various podcasts. Can you say a little bit for starters about like your experience both before psychology and in psychology that kind of gets you into doing this mindfulness for Mensch's project? Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting. I guess for starters, I headed into my 
formative teen years, if you will, you know, being raised in an atheist home. So there was no, well, certainly there was no religious input in that home or spiritual input. Uh, and to my memory, there was nothing that had to do with Buddhism or meditation or anything. And I think it was probably my connection to it was probably a function of the times. Going to college in 1974 uh, at Binghamton, Eastern philosophy was kind of everywhere at that time in the counterculture. And so mm-hmm. I think probably that was my first real connection to, to mindfulness was because the counterculture was, you know, all about Eastern philosophy. Uh, the man who would become, uh, who, who now was Ram Das, probably had written Be Here Now by that time. And uh, the mm-hmm. beats were all, the beat poets and writers were all about Eastern philosophy. Kerouac was famously a Catholic Buddhist and Ginsburg, of course, was a Tibetan Buddhist and all of those guys wrote about that. And, you know, so it shows up in Kerouac's novels, shows up plenty in Ginsburg's poetry. So by the time I got to college, that stuff was kind of all around. Then I was also a theater major and the theater work at that time was that sort of explosion of experimental theater stuff. Uh, in America, that was the living theater and the, and, uh, uh, the open theater in Poland, there was a guy named Jerzy Grotowski doing this very experimental work. Mm-hmm. And that work was all about body work and breath and uh, heightened awareness. So that infused a lot of the theater work that I was doing, uh, including yoga and meditation. So you put that together with the, you know, with it all hanging around in the culture and then, you know, you sprinkle in pot and LSD. And <clears throat> frankly, pot and LSD opened the, do- opened the doors of perception, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. for, you know, so many of us. And I don't think that if you were doing, if you were doing those things, particularly LSD, in any kind of a serious way, which, you know, we felt we were, we weren't just partying, we were reading, you know, Leary and people like that. And so we viewed this as some sort of great awakening if you approach those things that way you were going to come away with all kinds of loosened thoughts about consciousness and awareness and and meditative states and altered states of consciousness so all of that primed me okay Mm -hmm. and then you started teaching people how to think better about their own minds through psychology like how does how did that jump in particular happen do you well i mean i i started chickening out about going into theater about my second or third year. And uh, so I added a second major uh, in psychology, not knowing a whole lot about psychology, but because I couldn't think of what else to do. And your grandfather actually said, maybe you should try psychology. I see figured that I was that kind of a person. It's right about the time that I picked up my philosophy theater double major, ironically. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Timing wise there. Yeah, go ahead. Doesn't make as much sense to flee into philosophy if you're worried about you know, jobs and positions from theater, you know, I mean, Oh no, you thought that psychology was a really stable environment to move uh, into. Well, I mean, at least you could get a job in psychology. I don't know what you thought. I remember my entire childhood was you being like, don't go into psychology because you'll have to deal with insurance companies for the rest of your life. Oh yeah. Those fuckers. Jesus. Anyway. So yes. So I picked up the psychology (laughs) major 
and started reading about different forms of psychotherapy. And Gestalt therapy was the one that jumped out because it was so theatrical. Mm -hmm. It's so enactment based and so body based. And so I started, you know, reading books about that and studying that. And then this may even have been happenstance, but when I came to grad school in Richmond at VCU, there was a professor emeritus who ha uh, named Bill Groman who had studied under Pearls, Fritz Pearls, and Laura Pearls, mm -hmm. who were the founders of Gestalt therapy. So he was, you know, second generation Gestalt therapy teacher. Uh, and even though he was a professor emeritus, he was still giving workshops that were quite popular. So I took his workshops. Then there were other Gestaltists that came to Richmond or were in Richmond, and I took workshops with them. And so I got involved in the Gestalt work that way while I was still nursing all of this mindfulness stuff. They were still sort of separate pieces for me. Mm -hmm. I see. And then from there, you end up as the clinical psychologist for the expanse of my life, I suppose. And mm -hmm. Um, so there's a lot there's a lot of concepts there to unpack that I think it'd be helpful for us to work through a little bit. Um, and then we can talk about your mindfulness uh, for Mensch's project. Um, and I think actually the one you have used the least is probably the easiest one for you to make clear, especially for the Gentiles who might be wondering whether they need to Google this term or not. So what what is a Mensch, Jess? Mensch is a, a word from German and Yiddish, uh, which are, you know, pretty close languages. Uh, a mensch means a whole person or a good person or a righteous person. And uh, it, it actually, when I did some research on the word, as I started to write the book, uh, I found that actually it had been used in, in humanist discourses. Uh, so it mm. comes within the history of humanism. Uh, so hmm. when I was growing up, I mean, mensch is a very, very common word amongst uh, Jewish people. You'll hear it a lot. Oh, he's such a mensch. He's such a mensch. What it really means is a, a, a decent person, a whole person. Um, and although it connotes mm -hmm. a righteous person, I've sort of expanded the definition as I use it to include uh, a little bit more of what I think of as a well-rounded person. You know, a person who mm -hmm. um, has depth to them and, and, and again, wholeness and not just ethically righteous. You mentioned Buddhism and Taoism, which are things that we've done previous episodes on. Do you see any sort of overlaps between the like mensch and the Taoist sage or like the way mm -hmm. the Buddhists think about um, you know, bodhisattvas or something like that. How yeah, you, I mean, how do you I would, connect those concepts in your mind, or do you not? I would, I would put it closer to bodhisattva in in the sense that the bodhisattva is one who, having attained enlightenment, comes back into the world and tries to free other people from suffering. You know, rather than mm -hmm. going off and and being apart from the world, there is this sense of a person who comes in and, and lives in the world, but in some ways a little bit different from that tradition one of the reasons i wrote the book was ah, there's something still kind of monastic a little bit mm -hmm. when you learn basic mindfulness theory and practice there's still kind of that whiff of monasticism even though there are plenty of obviously non-monastic 
very socially engaged Buddhists in our country and in the world, um, there's still something a little bit cool, cool-ish temperature-wise about the whole mm-hmm. thing. And for me, the reason I brought gestalt therapy into the mix is I wanted something fleshier. When I think about a mensch, I wanted somebody who lives in the world, who's anything but a perfect example of enlightenment, you know, who is flawed, who is fleshy and human um, Mm -hmm. and challenged. Now, I I do think that the best understandings of, you could say, the bodhisattva path or the Buddhist path really includes all that, but it's not popularly Mm -hmm. what we think of. We, you know, we tend to think of saffron robes and, you know, uh, a, a, a sort of a sparing monastic life. And I sure as hell have not lived that kind of a life. So I can't encourage or teach that approach to this kind of work. Yeah. And there are interesting stories of like the bodhisattvas when they become enlightened, doing very non-monastic things like getting incredibly drunk as like part of their helping other people to become enlightened. So I do think there is a kind of almost like act consequentialism. I think some folks have argued in the way that those traditions approach the kind of sagely individual the way the way you were talking about it is a kind of complete individual and a righteous individual actually reminds me a lot of virtue theory and this kind of aristotelian idea of like a fully fleshed out and developed person who is flourishing in such a way where they do the right thing but not in a kind of overly moralizing or righteous way they do it because it is the right thing and and they value doing it for that reason i think of like mensches as like kind of individuals who casually do the right thing like they just easily help a person out without feeling resistance about it or conflict over it or something perhaps yeah that makes some sense to me that that definitely makes mm-hmm. some sense i don't know much about aristotle or any of those guys but that sure sounds like it to me uh, mm-hmm. Proto Jew, that Aristotle. Uh, no, uh, it's just throwing out red meat. Um, so let me ask you then about a slightly harder concept. We've been throwing around the word mindfulness here. And again, this is a common buzzword at this point, but I do think it's worth not treating it as something where everyone knows what it actually means. How do you sort of understand? kind of the theory, the history of the theory of mindfulness, and also like the history of the practice of mindfulness, Mm -hmm. like good and bad out there in the world? Well, I mean, historically, mindfulness, mostly we think of mindfulness as coming from the Hindu and Buddhist traditions and the Taoist traditions, the Eastern meditative traditions, although there are meditative traditions that come from, say, the Christian monastics, uh, meditative traditions from the Jewish Kabbalists. Um, So really, the mainstream religions all have a kind of mystic thread that doesn't get taught very much in the mainstream uh, that includes these sorts of things. I think of mindfulness as the um, science and practice of attentional work, what we do with our attention and how that either increases suffering or increases flourishing. Uh, So it's really about learning how your consciousness works and learning to more skillfully work within your consciousness to reduce suffering and enhance flourishing. Okay. So when you say attentional work, can you give like a basic example 
of a practice and what you would like when, when you would suggest doing that practice and what you would hope would be the kind of benefit of doing that mindfulness work? Uh, yeah, let me see if I can kind of back into this. So everything we experience all the time is consciousness. Uh, consciousness is the most primary. It is our primary experience. It's all we ever get. Okay. Everything mm -hmm. we could say, if you believe there's a material world out there, Everything yeah. is filtered through consciousness. Okay, so you're coming, coming in strong for phenomenological idealism. Which, well, um, props. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, yeah, a larger amount of the audience will be with you on this. So carry on. Sure. Um, again, you don't have to argue whether there is a material world out there filtered through our senses and our consciousness right. uh, inputs. Uh, it, it doesn't matter whether you believe there's a material world out there. What we experience is, is what I'm calling consciousness. Uh, attentional work means learning that within consciousness, you, there is what you could call a uh, attentional muscle or uh, something like a spotlight on a stage, okay? A spotlight on a stage, when it's focused on a particular actor or actors, brings them out from the background, okay? Makes them figural, okay? So mm -hmm. all day long, we are... Uh, intentionally or unintentionally moving this focal spotlight around to, to pay attention, basically. What we put that focal spotlight on will have a great deal of impact on how we feel, what we think, how we experience ourselves in the world, and therefore a great deal of impact on our well-being or our flourishing mm -hmm. and our suffering. That. So what would like a, what would like a toy example be where it's like drawing attention somewhere oh. like increases flourishing and decreases suffering? Well, I mean, take the simplest, 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 simplest mindfulness thing, which is uh, uh, breath focused meditation. OK, mm -hmm. so the instructions are you sit down, you get comfortable, you close your eyes and you start to pay attention to the sensation of the in-breath and the sensation of the out-breath. You're just following it. Then fairly soon, you notice you're not following it anymore. You notice that you're now wrapped up in some thoughts about what happened before, what's happening right now, what's going to happen later. And there's some feelings that come with that. And then you, oh, mm -hmm. remember, oh, I'm supposed to be meditating. And so you return to the breath. And you do this again and again and again, rinse and repeat forever in the meditation and what you will begin to notice is that there is a certain emotional color and tone when you are wrapped up in those thoughts or images or memories or anticipatory fantasies. And that emotional tone changes when you let go of that and return your focus to the breath. And that as the meditation goes on, as you repeatedly interrupt the thought stream there is this slow, uneven settling that begins to happen because you keep disengaging from the very dramatic productions of your mind, the stuff that's going mm. on in those thoughts and feelings and images and memories and anticipatory fantasies. So that's a Would you very... describe that? Say yeah. again? Oh, I was curious. Yeah. So would you describe that then that kind of attentional work as sort of non-attachment work where you you get pulled along by your thoughts and you're attached to them and that coloring you're describing is like 
over identifying with them or something like that. And so this focusing on the breath is sort of pulling us away from that kind of attachment. Is yeah. that the basic idea? Yeah, or, absolutely mm -hmm. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Because the extent to which we identify with uh, or become attached to is the extent to which we are lost in the content of all of that mental stuff. So mm -hmm. I'm sitting there meditating and I think about something yesterday that I said that was stupid and I lose myself in the replay of that and I feel like a jerk and I'm berating myself and that's me at that moment sitting on that cushion. I'm back there the day before and I'm stuck in that experience again and again being reminded what a dope I was. That's suffering producing attachment to a certain, we could say, ego image or set of egoic experiences. When I go back to the breath, it loosens my attachment. I remember I'm just consciousness sitting here on this cushion breathing. I'm not yesterday. I'm not who I was yesterday. And that's not still going on. So the breaking of attachment is essentially breaking a very common and very normal delusion, the delusion okay. of attachment or the delusion, we could say, of identity, the delusion okay. that, I, that I am this person in this story that my mind loves to tell and a story full of, you know, shame and anxiety and, you know, bullshit. Yeah. And there's different layers there that you can buy into, right? Not everyone has to buy into the fully Buddhist there is no self except the narrative of suffering kind of mindset. You could also, you know, like if you have ever been a guest on a podcast, for example, you know, the experience of leaving the recording and spending the next 10 to 12 hours reliving everything that you could have said and didn't manage to include in that, you know, short podcast period. Uh, and that can be to me a version of like what you're describing there where it's like, you're stuck in the past reliving mm -hmm. that and, doing the kind of breath work that you're talking about can help nudge you towards sort of the present moment. I think it'd be worth actually bringing in something here that is like a cultural touchstone that was loomed large for me growing up at least mm -hmm. because of the time that it showed up in the mindfulness tradition. And that I think is also a good one to set up for our discussion of like, what about this stuff is valuable and what about it can like become not, good in some of the ways that I think you were highlighting earlier, which is uh, the book Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Mm -hmm. So for folks who are not familiar, do you want to like say a little bit briefly about like how you encountered Tolle and what you think are like the, the important insights of that? And I think that'll help us kind of lead people into understanding the Gestalt stuff a little better because that can feel very technical, I think. Yeah, I mean, Tolle is just did a j just a very eloquent job in this rather thin, dense volume of uh, summarizing the theory and practice of what we've been talking about. Uh, his focus was on that part of mindfulness that has to do with uh, breaking the attachment to there and then thinking, past, future, uh, stories about the self that have nothing to do with this moment and returning again and again to the now, the capital N now, and teaching you various portals into the now, ways to come into the now. The idea here being not that memory or anticipation or storytelling are bad, 
but that the undisciplined use of them by our minds can create much more pain and suffering than is helpful for us. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that, yeah. if that got yeah, where you no, wanted us to go. For sure. Yeah. I think that's valuable because I do think what I found insightful about that material was the idea that a, like when Buddhists talk about pain and suffering, a lot of what they're talking about is not the actual physical, my body hurts right now in the present moment kind of pain. There is some of that, but there's much more of it, I think, is the like, as you're saying, sort of psychological attachment suffering of I want this thing in the future or I miss this thing I used to have in the past or I regret this thing I did wrong in the past that kind of these, these things that like pull us into those other spaces where we have no ability to act only to kind of reflect and suffer. Um, yeah, it's the, it's the, it's, I think there's the analogy in Buddhism is like, there's two arrows that strike you. One is the pain, you know, something happens mm-hmm. and it's unfavorable and it feels bad when it happens and so on, or you do something that you feel is unfavorable. And the second arrow, which is your obsessing about it and your attachment mm-hmm. now to that event. So what we're trying to do is, is lessen the secondary suffering, which for mm-hmm. most people, psychologically, the secondary suffering is really, I don't know if it's the largest part of the suffering really that we experience as humans, or it's the largest part that we generally have a whole lot of control over or a whole lot of choice in. Yeah, I'm not even sure I would want to say either of those things, but I I think like this is this is an important crux of where like we have to be careful that it doesn't like, as you were saying, slide into that kind of coolness of Western Buddhism, because I think the risk can be like with stoicism. If you have this idea that the response to the suffering is the only either the only place in which you can act or the place in which you are the most likely to have the most impact there's an easy moral move to make towards focusing all of our or the vast majority of our energy and attention on just not being unhappy about the state of the reality rather than changing the state of the reality. Um, not to say that that's what the goal is, but in practice, I think that's something that you were mentioning earlier about coolness, I think plays out in those kind of ways or to like take actions that are kind of very incrementalist versus more radical mm-hmm. various ways in which we, you know, non-attachment becomes the shutting down of engagement with reality in some ways that need to be very hot sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that's part of why I, in writing the book and, and putting together the, you know, the whole concept, why I pulled in the Gestalt work because it's, it's it's fleshy, actiony, energetic work that includes all that engagement that we sometimes mm-hmm. mistakenly think is not going to be a part of mindfulness work. Um, but you know what we're touching on here too is a common critique of mindfulness now, and and a good caution about mindfulness in the popular usage and culture right now. So mindfulness, you know, has been Caught, kind of caught wildfire in a lot of different areas. It caught wildfire in psychology over the past, I'd say, 10 or 15 years. Uh, it's caught mm-hmm. huge wildfire in the business world. And so there are plenty of courses and trainers and projects to teach people to be more mindful. The problem is, is that if you divorce mindfulness from ethical engagement in the world, 
it can mm-hmm. be used as a tool, you know, in business, sometimes it is perhaps being advertised as a tool simply to make people more mentally productive or more productive workers. Uh, or, mm-hmm. or, you know, I suppose to anesthetize people against things in the uh, pain about things in the world that they ought to feel pain about and do something about. Uh, so, you know, mm-hmm. remember mindfulness within the Buddhist frame is only one part of the eightfold path, right? Mindfulness. There's also right action. You know, there's, there's all kinds of other ethical teachings. Unfortunately, mindfulness sometimes is divorced from that stuff uh, as we learn it, you know, currently. And I think I see a lot of similarities between the way it's treated and the way stoicism is often sort of simplified down to a system of managing one's responses divorced from obligations. Not to say there aren't stoics out there who are doing, you know, value-based focused approaches, Mm -hmm. um, that that is sort of, one side of the like coin of like capitalist commodification co-opting however you want to put it of mindfulness is the way that mindfulness becomes used as a like right to use the Nietzsche term neoplatonic slave cult kind of idea right like Mm -hmm. you're just making people okay with what is Mm -hmm. Um, another one that I think and this also is why I wanted to bring up power of now is there's a ongoing commodification of mindfulness in the self-help world um and with with varying degrees of woo-ness i think um and i'm you know i feel like that has been the case from the beginning with this kind of content Mm -hmm. um and i'm curious to hear sort of how you experienced that side of things over your you know many decades of working with this material well i mean first I, i'd like to hear you talk a little bit about what comes under the category of wooness when it comes to mindfulness mm-hmm. so i get the sense so that so that i know we're talking about the same things so like how would you describe yeah. that yeah so in this domain i think like the biggest examples is going to be what I would relate to the new thought movement stuff that I've talked about before about like basically mind over matter kind of things, things related to the placebo world, things where if you do enough mindfulness, you can cure your X, Y, Z, like ways in which, um, you know, orienting the mind in a certain way can like predictably or reliably, you know, have physical results on like uh, on on a scale that I think would go beyond simple things like the relaxing of a muscle because you're no longer tense, which uh-huh. I think would be plausible if you imagine that this is a process of just relaxing, right? So the, the, a lot of stuff related to like the placebo effect kinds of ideas where mm-hmm. people get confused. I think I'm going to talk about this um, before with Mike Hall. People get confused and they think of like the placebo effect being not just I think I'm feeling better when nothing's actually improving in a subject in an objective way, but also I'm objectively getting better because I subjectively do a lot of thinking and concentrating on getting better or something. Yeah, I mean, to 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 use the placebo effect as the as the central example could be a little misleading because the the placebo effect itself is a function the placebo idea is a function mm-hmm. of the belief in a split between mind and body. So we would say like, oh, we gave this person sugar pills and they felt a lot better. That's just a placebo. It was all in their mind. 
that comes from a day when we didn't realize that there were uses of mind that could influence our emotional well-being and could influence our physical well-being. I mean, I can lower my blood pressure because I do lots and lots of mindfulness, okay? It's not that hard mm-hmm. to do. If you extend right. this into the realm of sort of new age thinking about manifesting positive mm-hmm. fortune in the world or curing your cancer with meditation, I, I, that's where I'm glad to have the Gestalt stuff because I think about Fritz Perls who said there, there's three kinds of shit, chicken shit, horse shit, and elephant shit. That's kind of high level elephant shit. You know, uh, the, okay. no, the notion that you that you could bend spoons with your mind like Yuri Geller. I don't know if that's a very dated reference, but he was a mystic. Uh, that, that'll land with the skeptic portion of the audience, at least. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah no, good. I mean, that's that's high level bullshit. Um, uh-huh. uh, we don't know. We don't know the extent of the impact of mind on our physical situation. We certainly don't have any idea whether the effects of mind extend beyond our skin boundary, but we definitely don't know the impact of mind on our physical situation or vice versa. And so to make statements about uh, curing your cancer with mindfulness or uh, manifesting good luck with mindfulness, you know, it's not just speculative, it's destructive because it's... it's, a, it's like a set of category errors, you know? I can change my experience of the world through mindfulness, but that does not change necessarily certain material conditions, you know? They're separate mm-hmm. domains to some degree. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that speaks to the concern about Wu, but uh, um, my, yeah. My, yeah. My, my sense with mindfulness always has been only by what you experience. And, and if you go back to Buddha, Buddha said, don't take my word for any of this shit. Try it for yourself and see what happens. And mm-hmm. that's, that's primary experiential uh, empiricism. Then there's you know plenty of good old scientific empiricism since about the 80s when they began studying mindfulness meditation in a more uh, Western scientific way. And there's plenty of good evidence that it does have an impact on our emotional and sometimes our physical well-being. Um, so, I mean, that stuff's out there. Mm-hmm. If anybody, you know, is concerned about non-scientific basis for mindfulness, there's plenty of stuff out yeah. there. Yeah. I think it's tricky, right? Because I think we all acknowledge there's a mind-body connection. I think we all acknowledge causal influence going in both directions. And at some point, there's a cutoff where that causal influence becomes sufficiently implausible given the evidence uh, to justify belief in whatever thing is making those kinds of claims. And and related to this, I think, I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts. One concern that I've had with this stuff that I didn't experience from you growing up, but I do think is why other people have it, see it as a more toxic kind of space sometimes is a kind of overselling slash victim blaming related to mindfulness material where the idea is that you can do a lot more with it than I think someone like you would actually think you could really successfully do with mindfulness. And then when you fail to do those things, it's, you know, you didn't mindfulness hard enough or something like that. Yep. Um, Get at that. Like, I'd actually be curious to hear 
if maybe you could talk a little bit about a personal experience for you where you feel like you're doing mindfulness, but it's not like it doesn't go particularly amazing. So like, for example, I guess let's use the one from your, your book, right? Part of the reason you wrote this material was because you were having a health situation. Do you want to maybe talk about like what was valuable about mindfulness in that moment and what were the limits of that technique in that moment as well as a way to sort of yeah. counteract that overselling? Oh, sure. Um, yeah. So I got sick in 2022, um, uh, right in the midst of the pandemic. I didn't get sick with COVID, but I, I started having uh, diverticular bleeding, which is a blood coming from these little diverticuli in your colon, or in this case, in my colon. Uh, and I became anemic and, and had, had to be hospitalized because I'd lost a bunch of hemoglobin. Um, from the very beginning of that experience, I was using mindfulness just to manage my fear of the experience. I'd never been in a hospital before. I didn't know what was wrong with me. Um, and uh, so all the way along during the experience of going in the hospital, being in the hospital, leaving the hospital, I'm using mindfulness much of the time just to stay present in the moment and not get into catastrophic fantasies. You know, I got a doctor comes into the into the uh, room that I'm in. I'm sitting in there by myself for four days, pretty much, because and everybody's masked. You know, I can't have visitors. And you know, I got a doctor mm -hmm. coming in and talking about how if this thing goes a certain way, they might have to put an ostomy bag in me and all this stuff. You know, this that and the the whole larger prospect of mortality starts coming into mind in this situation. And one of the ways I manage myself during that time is I keep wrestling myself back to the present moment again and again and again. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, beyond that, and what became the spine of the book, Mindfulness for Menches, is um, I started using what we'll, I guess, get into talking about soon, this seven-step awareness cycle from Gestalt therapy that I used while I was in the hospital as a way of saying, okay, what am I going to learn from this experience? Okay, which is a key concept in a lot of different approaches, Gestalt or in mindfulness is treat whatever difficult experience you're going through as something that you, is supposed to teach you something. You know, this is sort of the secular atheist version of God has a plan. But since I don't believe mm -hmm. in God, then I don't believe in that stuff. That doesn't work for me. What works for me is the best way to go through difficult stuff is to assume that I'm going to learn some things that I might not have learned under easier conditions. And when I look back, I'm going to say, you know, if that shit hadn't happened to me, I wouldn't have gotten over here and I wouldn't have learned this and that. So I was using that all the way along while I was, you know, in the hospital and after. Did that answer your question? I did. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's interesting to note, you're not claiming like you might feel like doing that, like potentially has better outcomes because you're less anxious or stressed or something less fearful, but you're not claiming that you're using it to cure whatever is causing you or, you know, harm or something like, like no whatever way. medicine like is doing alongside of that. This is primarily to me, a process of, 
improving your quality of life psychologically by sort of short-circuiting the natural fear reactions that we have as biological creatures. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no great mm-hmm. claims. I didn't make my diverticular bleeding stop. I was very glad there were doctors and nurses and iron transfusions and blood transfusions, <laughs> you know? Right. It's like, uh, you know, I think about Ken Wilber, who's why, you know, the Buddhist philosopher whose wife died of cancer him saying in some article about cancer and meditation, you know, meditation might help your well-being, may even help your physical well-being, but if you get cancer, do the chemo and meditate, you know? Don't think that you're going to substitute one for the other. Right, absolutely. Uh, So I do want to talk about mindfulness for mentions. There's a term we've been using a lot, gestalt, that we did an episode on way, way back when, but I think it'd be helpful if we just sort of quickly explained what that word means and what it means in the context of Gestalt therapy mm-hmm. with just like a basic example, like you were describing the foreground background stuff in particular. Right. Um, Gestalt just means whole in German. Uh, and it's a holistic form of therapy that considers the individual organism within their environment in a systems oriented kind of way. Uh, so by a hole, you mean a collection of things, not a hole in the ground, just for people yes, to uh, make sure they know which, which thing you're claiming is real here. Right. Although Gestalt therapy comes out of the psychoanalytic tradition, Freud's psychoanalytic tradition, it is much wholer in terms of working with body and breath and movement and enactment of various kinds. Um, Mm -hmm. in order to explore and work on how we tick inside and how we operate outside. Uh, Mm -hmm. You mentioned, Mm. yeah, go ahead. No, you go. No, I was just saying, you mentioned Freud there. No, you go. Uh, You mentioned Freud there. And I think another in the like realm of places where I think people get a little anxious about this stuff is like that. I think actually Gestalt is quite good is in the approach to the unconscious, Right. A lot of psychology is about, you know, I think I think to be fair, a lot of psychology is about trying to figure out what's going on in our mind that our introspection is failing to show us because it is fallible. Right. Like we all acknowledge at this point that our introspection is fallible. We want to try to understand ourselves better. And to that extent, we are always trying to bring into the foreground of consciousness this kind of you know, whatever is hiding in the background to some extent, right? And yep. what I like about Gestalt is that it doesn't it doesn't construct a complex archetypal world. In my, for me, at least, maybe some Gestaltists do it, but I don't think you need any, like, metaphysics. Like, it's like phenomenology that way. You don't need any metaphysics of the unconscious. A lot of it just seems to me to just be notice this thing that's stuck in the foreground. Why is it stuck in the foreground? Can you shift it somehow so that it loosens up? Um, like anxiety, you know, like if you're overly anxious about some particular thing, is there something you can do to like shift it so that it's less of an anxiety producer and then other things can be in your sort of central attention? Sure. Uh, that's one that, way, that's yeah. one way to describe it. Um, in Gestalt work, I don't know if we think so much about unconscious as out of awareness and yet having an impact Mm -hmm. on us. So because our attention is so often focused on some focal object, 
we may be operating on that focused object or situation, but how we operate on it is partially going to be determined by thoughts, feelings, memories, experiences that operate, you could say, in the back channel, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Either they operate as back channel memories that in a nanosecond are influencing our take on the present situation and maybe even being projected onto the present situation, or they operate in the form of habits. So much of how we work in the world is habitual, habitual response patterns, emotional, physical, interpersonal response patterns. And uh, the problem with habit is that it's rather unconscious, meaning it's programmed. Mm -hmm. We don't have to be freshly aware in the moment we operate kind of on autopilot a lot of the time. And both mindfulness and gestalt therapy help us look into what's going on so that we're less on autopilot and more awake to what's happening. Yeah, and there's an interesting conversation I think to be had about like flow state as a kind of conscious autopilot, but that might have to, might have to save that for um, the, the VIP section because I do want to talk some about specifically the mindfulness for Mensch's stuff. And I think you've now like given us a really nice setup for it. So we have, you know, the, the goal of mindfulness better understood, hopefully, would be the attentional work through non-attachment, getting you this ability to shift these things around in your cognition. And what you then are adding in here, it seems like, or, or integrating to me is focus specifically on the steps of, uh, I think you call them the cycles of experience or something like that, yeah. which is another Gestalt concept, um, but you break it down in a way that I think is really valuable. Do you want to sort of explain those steps a little bit and like, um, yeah, just start with just like laying out sort of the steps so that everyone can like understand how you're breaking down actions in this system? Sure. And the reason that I use the steps or the stages in the Gestalt awareness curve or the Gestalt awareness needs cycle, the reason I use it is because it's a helpful analytic tool for breaking down how we know we have certain needs, how we go about getting them met, and with what success, and then how we move on. So the, the Gestalt mm -hmm. awareness cycle is, the way, I, the way I describe it in the book, I've broken it down into seven steps. Sometimes the Gestalt awareness cycle has a few more, a few less, depending, because they're not really discrete, these steps. But the seven steps basically track how we first notice we have a need, which we would say is the sensation step, step one, how we become aware or uh, sensate to, oh, I'm having a need. Oh, I'm hungry. Oh, I'm thirsty. Oh, I'm bored and want stimulation. Oh, I'm lonely and I want contact, you know, basic stuff. Mm -hmm first coming to us intuitively through our senses, uh, in our body, uh, in our experience. The second stage is awareness, meaning how do we then stitch together these sensations that have arisen into a meaning system? How do we come to see them as meaning something about our mm -hmm. need? You know, what is the sensation I'm having? Oh, wow, I'm thinking a lot about food. I'm 
I, I smells all of a sudden are very acute for me. I, I'm, I'm pretty hungry. I'm starting to notice I'm really hungry. I don't want to pay attention to anyone else around me. I want to go find that food. So that is a function of the awareness part of the cycle. Then we move into the mobilization of energy part of the cycle, meaning that if we have successfully identified the need and understood the context in which that need could be met and how, now we start to develop energetic uh, enhancement. We start to feel more energy that we need to fuel the search to get the need met, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. we start to get interested. We start to maybe plan in our minds. We start to formulate ideas about how to get what we want. You know, we move from mobilization, hopefully into action, which is the uh, fourth stage, which is how we get up and go and approach what it is we need. Then we move Mm -hmm. into the, uh, fifth stage, which is contact where we finally get to that arena where the need is going to be met and we have to confront and encounter whatever that situation is to get the need met. You know, do I have to find food and start cooking it? Do I have to find that person who I have this unfinished business with and sit down and have that talk with them that I've been holding off on doing? Do I finally, you know, uh, finish my resume and start sending out job inquiries, finally taking action, you know, and making contact Mm -hmm. with potential employers. So that moves us into contact. Then, presumably, as we begin to get the needs satisfied, we get the food we wanted, we have the talk where things are clarified and ideas are exchanged, we talk to a potential employer and we start talking about what the job is involved with and whether we're fitting for it. And little by little, that's coming to some conclusion. Now we move into the sixth stage, which is satiation, where we presumably feel less and less of the need pulling on us because we have gotten it met to some degree. And we begin to experience a sense of, okay, enough contact. I've had enough for this moment of what it is I thought I needed. And then we move from satiation into withdrawal, where we, you could say, integrate what we have learned, integrate what we've gotten. We no longer feel the strength of that energetic need. And now the field is a little freer. We're in a little bit of solitude. And the next needs begin to arise. And we're back into the cycle on the sensation end again. Mm, Yeah. And so what is the goal here, I think, for folks to understand, like, even like, we can all have the basic idea of I get hungry, I want food, I go find food, I no longer need food. Right. So like, you know, to me, one of the key concepts, I think, in the Gestalt stuff that I found really valuable was this idea of mental flexibility. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about how like the mindfulness allows for increase of what they would call flexibility and thereby sort of healthy um, process of finding the food versus unhealthy process? Yeah, actually, what we want to start with perhaps is the obstacles Mm -hmm. that occur Mm -hmm. along the way in the cycle. Okay, so in Gestalt, there is this concept of stucknesses, meaning habitual patterns within any of these stages of the cycle, habitual patterns, customary patterns 
that we have grown to employ that make only certain possibilities possible and foreclose on others. So um, stucknesses are places where we uh, can only approach that stage in a limited way. Our range is limited, you know? So, so let's think about this, for example. Uh, take an extreme... Yeah, this has to do with the polarities that you talked about, right? Yeah. Like so openness gonna, yeah. versus closeness. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about polarities now. So take somebody who, uh, extreme example, uh, extreme anorexic, okay? Somebody perhaps who has so extinguished their sensations of hunger because of all the whatever, either genetic, biochemical, or psychological reasons, they've so extinguished their connection to hunger uh, that Mm -hmm. they are no longer aware of when their body actually needs nutrients. And that's, you know, how anorexics die, um, starve themselves to death. Part of the skill of being an anorexic uh, is the ability to uh, disconnect from the sensation of hunger. Mm-hmm. So stucknesses have to do with uh, being unbalanced in any of these stages, okay? And when we talk about balance, we're now talking about the theme of polarities. So uh, I'm somebody that uh, is hypersensitive to cues around food, sensory cues around food, okay? I'm food obsessed, okay? Mm-hmm. So smell, taste, uh, images of foods, you know, all of that stuff just fascinates me. I have much more trouble than your average anorexic not being overly focused on food, okay? Uh, I'm very heavily unbalanced when it comes to that polarity in a way the opposite of the anorexic who uh, has successfully managed to be so insensate to their own hunger that ideas of food, sensations of hunger, uh, all the things that would tempt someone like me, they're, they're numb to that. So the polarity or, here, or they have some other approach, right? Not, not necessarily numbness, but yeah, they may or may not of, be right. right. Um, so I'm just using that as an example. So one polarity mm-hmm. in the sensation stage might be oversensitive versus numb. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There are other polarities that might arise on, in the sensation stage uh, other than numbness. Uh, let me think about it for a second. Um, okay. Another, another possibility is uh, we like to attach ourselves to pleasant sensations, but we want to resist, deny, uh, catastrophize about unpleasant sensations. Well, unpleasant sensations are a part of how we figure out what's going on with us in the world. If we turn off on them, or if we simply regard them as unpleasant, we lose the opportunity to look into what's really happening and well, what might I be needing at this point? So it's a different kind mm-hmm. of, of stuckness or, or polarity imbalance. And then there are polarity mm-hmm. imbalances or stucknesses in all of the stages. Um, so here's a, here's, a, here's a better psychological example. Um, you're dealing with uh, a narcissistic boss, okay? A real tyrant, you know, a Trumpian figure. And... Uh, you're a 
kind of submissive person, let's say, somebody whose habit patterns run towards the submissive, okay? And maybe somebody mm-hmm. who has grown up fearing anger, let's say, for whatever reason, you know, turning off on that. So you sit down in meetings with this tyrannical boss and they thunder and they accuse and they blame and they scapegoat and you're sitting there and you're shaking and you you don't know why, but you know that you're shaking and uh, you all you can do is get more submissive and more quiet and feel more crushed. You're out of touch with the energy that actually might need to come through, which is anger. Okay. So even Mm -hmm. you may even be shaking with rage and not know it. If you have successfully boundaried yourself off from the possibility that you're a person who can experience healthy anger, you might even deny to yourself that the sensations and the beginnings of emotion you're having, you may not even label them as anger. You may label them as fear. You may label them as frustration, you know, or being mm-hmm. flustered or something like that. That's an example of a person who is unbalanced, whose habit patterns run towards submissive interpersonal patterns, uh, a greater awareness of when they're afraid and much less awareness of their capacity for anger. Okay. Right. Yeah. It makes me again, think of like sort of a mix of the virtue theory stuff where they talk about the golden mean, this idea that like you, you have to be aware of what your vices are and you have to kind of counterbalance them. So if you're someone who eats too much, you want to try to counterbalance yourself to eat less. There isn't an exact amount that everyone should eat, but like being aware of your own nature in those kinds of ways and correcting for it towards a healthy middle ground to some extent and doing so then like what I think this stuff adds in, it seems really valuable to me is a kind of phenomenology where you're, you're looking to your body to see what is it that you actually are imbalanced about. It's like you were saying there, you right. know, bringing attention to the shaking of your body to notice that you have uncontrolled anger, like anger that needs to be sort of vented or expressed in some kind of way like that. It's hard because I think when you talk about this stuff, it often can sound very obvious. Mm-hmm. Like there's a kind of simplicity and straightforward like, oh, obviously you're angry. But like in the moment, I think a lot of times people do hide from themselves what they're actually feeling and needing because partly because they're, you know, they're conflict averse or there is some other need that is forcing them to kind of sublimate those preferences. Oh, no question. Um, How we think of ourselves is also similarly habit bound and stereotyped. So if I think of myself as a really nice guy who loves everybody and I come upon a situation that runs counter to that in some way, I'm going to struggle with that because I haven't accepted the possibility that at times I don't feel like a nice guy. At times, you know, I don't feel so peaceable, you know, at times I Mm -hmm. I feel really aggressive, you know, Um, and you we do this work at every one of the stages in mindfulness for Mensch's the book that I've written. Uh, it's really a manual for how to look into each of the stages and what your characteristic stucknesses or polarity imbalances might be, as well as here are some exercises, 
not just for being aware of them, for how to experiment with changing them, you know? So mm-hmm. one of the things I went through when I was in the hospital was, you know, I, I drew out the Gestalt cycle for myself on a big sheet of paper when I was in the hospital and I was going, okay, at each mm-hmm. stage, what am like I trying to, what am I hospital. trying to learn here? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the places that I came upon as I began to think about working on this and maybe writing about it was in the mobilization of energy stage. So after you have an awareness of like what you need or what you want to do, you're supposed to raise energy enough that you can go out and do it. One of the stucknesses around mobilization of energy is self-doubt and ruminative self-questioning. So as I Mm -hmm. started thinking about writing this book, I got into my normal stucknesses of, God, there's a fucking thousand mindfulness books out there. Who the hell cares? Nobody wants to hear about your childhood, blah, 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 blah. That stuckness keeps energy from building towards action and contact for me. It's like a little eddy current. It's like getting caught in a little whirlpool Mm -hmm. where I'm in my own way, in my own way, in my own way. So as I was working on this, I could see how that was operating. And I could see how what I needed to do was to practice a little bit more of take action, however imperfectly you think, and however much you are concerned about the outcome not being any good, get the fuck out of your own way and just take action. So for me, that was a piece of real learning when I was writing the book, is I had to keep saying, for once in your life, get out of your way and just say what you want to say and let whatever happens with that happen with that in the aftermath. These are not Mm. unlike the kinds of things I work with people in therapy about, uh, whether it's, you know, that kind of a, you know, people getting stuck in their heads and not being able to take effective action or stucknesses people might have when they are in contact finally to get a need met, you know, I want to have this talk with this person, but I find when I'm in contact with them, I let them do all the talking and I don't stop them and interrupt and say what I mean or vice versa. I really want to make connection with this person, but I realize I'm talking all the time and I never let them get a word out. So they're not really engaged. All of these stages Mm -hmm. are places where we can do work to become what Fritz Perls would have called more response able. In other words, to have a more well-rounded, less stuck way of approaching each novel situation. Situation calls for anger, I'm capable of that. Situation calls for tenderness, I'm not scared of that, I'm capable of that, and so on. And Mm -hmm. that, of course, follows through on the other end as need subsides. Can I let go of contact? Or do I addictively stay in touch with it? I want more sex. I want more food. I want more reading. I want more, you know, am I, that's a stuckness, okay? Uh, being mm-hmm. insatiable. Or on the other side of it, do I leave contact before I'm satisfied? You know, do I withdraw prematurely? Do I agree with people before we've really chewed over what we're arguing over? And so on. So these are just examples. It's a very ironic example to raise as I'm watching the clock and thinking, I guess it's about time for us to wrap up, unfortunately. Uh, No, I I think these are, I really liked a lot of what you were saying in there in particular about the 
the challenges that we all experience in terms of trying to do the thing and the various like hurdles, psychological hurdles, especially that we face and doing the thing at every level, not just, you know, what we, what we traditionally identify as mental illness, but in all the levels of like challenges that we're all out here facing right now. So I think everything you're saying there ties things together really beautifully and, you know, sort of highlights how, this is stuff that lots of people are talking about in different ways, but I do think that what you're providing is a really straightforward, useful way to think about uh, these sorts of things that like breaks it up into chunks that are actionable, right? Because part mm -hmm. of the problem can often be that we feel overwhelmed by like having to do it all at once, but you could just do a little work on one step or something like that, it feels like. Yeah, that's why I built the book to be a seven stage, almost you could call it a seven day model. You can work on sensation all day long. You can work on awareness all day long. One of those days is resting, long. right? Yeah, you can work on withdrawal and rest all day long. That's right. So uh, I try to make it very, very practical. And you know, if people read the book or look at the website, you, you'll you see that once we're past these, this high level elephant shit, once we're past the high level concepts, it's about practical awareness and practical action on things it's very very pragmatic that's great well we're gonna have to leave it there unfortunately though we can chat a little bit more for the vip stuff i have to of course still torture you and the last question i like to ask before i get to the torture for folks who want to dive a little farther down into this kind of material besides obviously we'll link to your website and we'll give you a chance to promote that again at the end okay. um are there other resources that you feel like are particularly valuable for understanding mindfulness, gestalt, anything in particular around this? I mean, there's some, you know, there are obviously some very popular books about mindfulness that are out there. You mentioned Power of Now. For some of us, Power of Now is very awakening. Other people like John Kabat-Zinn's books, like Full Catastrophe Living. Uh, some people will go back to the classics, like Be Here Now uh, by uh, Ram Das. Um, you know, you can't turn around in a bookstore without falling over a pile of mindfulness books at this point. So there's plenty of it out there. Um, and plenty of videos and plenty of online teaching and so on. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's everywhere, you know. Um, it's true. Yeah. And those are just people I like. I mean, I'm not that crazy. John Kabat-Zinn's little, his writing's a little bit square for me, although I think he's very, very good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tara Brock is a really fine writer, Pema Chodron. These are good Buddhist teachers. Gestalt-wise, I don't know. I mean, that's part of why I wrote the book is because most Gestalt stuff is written for the practitioner to do with the client or with the patient. I wanted to right. write a Gestalt book that could be used by people, you know, using the concepts for themselves. So, you know, read my Not book. everyone who wants when everyone wants to read um, Person and Growth or whatever it is, that giant tome. Oh, God, nobody is crazy enough to pick that book up except you. You picked it up and read it like a right. crazy person. But uh, yeah, you know, I know there's all practitioners that don't want anything to do with that book. Pick it up. You handed it to me. Picked it up. So past the buck book there, buddy. Um, all right. Enough of that. Uh, I have to torture you now as, as you have for me for all these many years. No, I can't. This is the enlightening round. 
why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. Uh. And as we've discussed, the enlightening round, we have moved on to enlightening round part two for the time being. Um, so he, this is going to be the, unfortunately, you never got to do round one, but I think you will still find this sufficiently uncomfortable as to be entertaining <laughs> for our listeners. Oh, great. Uh, we're going to do the trolley problem. Ugh. So you get a list of things. Uh-huh. Here's what I want to know. What should you do? So emphasis on should there, mm-hmm. right? Not what would you do, mm-hmm. right? It's not a psychology podcast, despite the fact that I'm having psychologists on sometimes. Uh, what should you do in this situation? And assume, unless it says otherwise, that it involves pulling a lever, switching the trolley to cause the results in question, right? So my range okay. of my range of choices is forced choice or multiple choice. It's not... Yeah, I can't just yeah. run. I can't just run screaming from the tracks into the woods. Oh, you could say you wouldn't pull the lever, which is uh, the same as refusing to do the thing. So, okay, I suppose you are chained to the lever. Yes. All right, you ready? Okay. Yep, go for it. Okay, would should you pull the lever and save yourself by killing one other person? So wait, let me make sure I got understand. The trolley is moving down the thing. It's gonna and- hit you. It's going to hit me. And you can make it switch over and kill one other person. What should you do? Oh, shit. Yeah, this is why everyone hates ethical philosophers, right? Uh, yeah, literally. What should you do? Well, you should, you know, you should let it kill you. Ah, okay. Um would you then uh also i guess assume you would you should save you shouldn't save yourself by killing 100 people as well shouldn't save yourself by killing 100 people yes no that seems even worse that's even more trumpian (laughs) okay great now what about saving five people by killing one random person yeah yeah i think the math makes sense if that's all the only two choices you got the fuck you gonna do okay great now what about saving the five people by pushing a person onto the tracks (laughs) see i'd be more comfortable hurling myself onto the tracks if we're talking shoulds ah yeah it's not an option but that's not an option You're you're not big enough to derail the train yeah yeah no i guess you gotta do it I guess you got to do. I hate. I hate the thought of it, but kind of like, kind of like putting the lobsters in the pot. You know, you say a little prayer, you apologize to them, say I'm sorry for pushing you on the tracks, but you know, utilitarian. We got to save those hundred other people. So sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is okay. Awful, awful, now, awful, 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 awful. <laughs> what if? Does it make any difference to you if the person push be you're pushing is responsible for them being on the tracks in the first place? They, let's say they put them there. Oh, then I'd gladly throw them on the tracks. Wait, that, I see. That makes it easy. It makes it easier for you. Just curious. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So should you then, situation where you have to save five, but in order to get to the lever, you have to go through a teleporter, takes you apart, makes a copy of you on the other end. Mm-hmm. Should you go pull that lever? You mean, should I risk going through a teleporter and come out like a ship of Theseus person? Oh, basically, of course. Yeah, as long okay. as I don't come out inside out like the baboon in that movie, you know. 
Okay, fair enough. Uh, all right, what about this one? You have to kill your favorite artist to save their complete body of work. Ooh. You meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Uh, to save the body of work? No, no, I can't do it. That can't do that. <clears throat> you shouldn't life, do it. No, nah, the person's life is more important than their body of work. I mean, I can't. I shouldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't do that. <laughs> All right. What about save your favorite, most important to you, non-human animal by killing one human? Like save my cat by killing somebody yep. else. And I don't know what this person's intention is, or I just know just that it's either the person or the cat, huh? That if I opt mm -hmm. to save the person, yep. the cat dies. Yep. <sighs> yeah, I guess I'm still, I, I, I'm still sort of a species chauvinist here. Yeah. I, guess I, I think <laughs> that the human life has to be preserved over the cat. Okay. Luckily, so the cats are not in the room as I say this. I know, right? They're not going to listen to this later. Um, what if you could save a whole ecosystem by, by killing one human? Yeah. yeah Just I, one? Yeah, no, I think so. Yeah, I think You so. go full eco-terrorist in that situation? Okay. I mean, the ecosystem, that translates to thousands and millions of lives of various species. So, mm. again, sort of All right. math makes some sense. All right, last one. Save a sentient AI by killing one human. Nope. Uh-uh. I'm, 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 again, a species chauvinist. I don't believe in sentient wow. AI. Very hardcore species. You're going you're gonna to suffer online later for this one. Uh, no, you have survived. How do you feel? I feel great, as always, with this sort of garbage. <laughs> horrible. I'm just grateful to not be in these situations. I appreciate the fact that I'm here right now and not in these imaginary situations. How about that? Fair enough. And we certainly wouldn't want to make you think that all of your choices in life are like one of these situations or anything, because that would be irritating. <laughs> God, uh, yeah. No, thank you. That was fun. And we're going to, I'm still tweaking the format on this new, like, trolley round. I think I may go with like, secondary questions based on responses to the first ones so that they make a little more sense but mm -hmm. always happy to hear from folks on better ways to torture uh guests more effectively um so thanks for coming on jess thanks for giving me a chance to ease back into the uh hosting process do you want to let folks know where they can find your stuff before we head on over to the vip sure uh the book which was the real point of the whole mindfulness for mentions project was to write this book the book is unpublished right now anyway I, I i'm not sure i'm going to be able to hunt up a publisher who'll take this uh but the book is available upon request i, I don't have the rights to use some of the cartoons in it uh, that's in the works but if i'm just giving away copies of the book i don't think that's any big deal i don't think the new yorker is going to come running after me for that so uh, if your readers or listeners rather are interested in really the 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 full thing as opposed to just the website i'm happy to you know to email them a, a copy of the document uh which i think is good reading and i think it's fun uh, I, I think it's enjoyable uh other than that 
there is menchitude.com, and I will spell that because not everybody can spell menchitude, M-E-N-S-C-H-I-T-U-D-E.com, menchitude.com, which is the Mindfulness for Mensch's website that you know covers a fair amount of what I've said today and then some. Uh, it's so certainly not as thorough as the book, but it gives a, a nice idea of the breakdown of the whole thing. Yeah, it's a fun, uh, useful website. Yeah. It's uh, amu- amusing to use a concept like mensch that, you know, use a Yiddish term to get uh, everybody catching on to something or a German term. But yeah, I, it's a really great um, ac- resource for folks who like want to understand Gestalt without being the per- sort of person who has to figure out what the word Gestalt necessarily means. Sure. Um, so much appreciated. Um, sure. All right. Well, thank you all. Um, thank you, folks. And we will uh, chat with our uh, VIP folks after dark here a little bit. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. I'm so excited to be back at recording. I've got a great lineup of guests for the fall. And to keep things fresh and flourishing, we're going to stick with the alternating week schedule with Philosophers in Space. So look forward to longer, deeper dives into the void. As always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Alex Benshek, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, and Neil Polzin is an elected official. Learn more at neilcovina.com. Jesse Urbanowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. Thank y'all. Thanks to all the new patrons who we have picked up over break. Um, I will try to get to all y'all's names in the very near future. Um, in the meantime, if you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons's Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can follow me on Twitter at ETVpod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, whether you're stuck or flowing, you are the void and the void is you. Thank you.